The Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And this week we're going to be talking about uh, the dueling strikes going on. I guess, I, I mean, they're not really dueling each other. <laughs> um, but the combined strikes uh, in Hollywood right now that have ground production to a halt. The strike by the Writers Guild and by SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Guild. Uh, they're locked in intense negotiations uh, with the various production studios. Uh, but before we dig into that, Sarah, what you eating and what's eating you? In fact, I need to eat. Uh, I, <laughs> that's kind of the thing I forgot to do before I sat down here. Um, but uh, I will say that I started getting into um, uh, egg carving, like eggshell carving. Mm-hmm. Um which is kind of a Zen sort of thing. Cause you're like holding this thing that you have to like jam a rotary tool cutter into. Uh, but I've only broken one, which is really surprising. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, it's really weird. So blow out some eggshells. Uh, the homegrown eggs are going to have thicker shells than the uh, store-bought eggs. So if you want to get into it, um, do it, get yourself a little Harbor Freight Dremel and just go for it. That sounds like fun. It also sounds terrifying. I I feel like I would uh, be always afraid of destroying it. That's the thing. That's one of those. Have you ever, have you seen that guy on TikTok who uh, makes the pottery and then he just takes his cutter and he just whoop right through the middle and the pot like collapses on both sides. Because, you know, like potters are all like secretly Buddhist or not so secretly Buddhist, right? Where it's just like, well, we'll try again tomorrow, right? Like, so it collapsed. We, we remake the clay, whatever. Uh this kind of feels like that, right? Like the chickens will lay more eggs. There's an infinite number of chances for me to improve uh, this this uh, weird skill. But yeah, that's that's my thing. I don't have a lot that's eating me. Uh, um, <laughs> no, that I sounds. I, I like embracing the transience of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you? What yeah. are you eating? What's eating you? Um. So, uh, what I'm eating? I had chicken parm for lunch. Um, oh. And so, uh, you know, we're, we were gonna, we knew that we were going to be t- on this topic today. So I just wanted to shout out uh, the movie Scott Pilgrim versus the World. It's one of the lesser known Edgar Wright flicks. It's based on a uh, graphic novel. Um, and uh, there's a vegan in it who gets uh, who has superpowers because being a vegan in this universe gives you superpowers. <laughs> but um, the, it's played by Brandon Routh. He yeah. uh, of the ill-fated Superman um, R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> Superman uh, stint. Um, there's also a pre-MCU Brie Larson in, yeah. in a small role, which is fun. Little known fact that she uh, had an ill-fated career as like a tenad- as a Canadian like teeny bop uh, yeah. uh, wannabe star- uh, singer. Uh, but uh, he has superpowers from being vegan, but then the vegan police come and take it away. Uh, <laughs> and he says the epic line, Chicken parm isn't vegan? (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was, listen, far be it from my place to correct you, but isn't this Scott Pilgrim versus the universe? Mm -mm. No? Versus the world. Okay, interesting. It's Steven Universe and Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Um, Uh, Okay. Uh, Also, um, Kieran Culkin is probably the funniest. Kieran Culkin steals every fucking scene in that movie, which is like one of my, uh, it is truly one of my favorite movies. Like, I wish more... When they did these uh, these comic book adaptations, that they were more like that, right? Like where like some of that comic book absurdity and the brightness and like the the way that like cartoon elements were kind of cut into it, and 
God, it's to me, that is like one of the most perfect pieces of fiction, right? Like of you like disappearing into a world. It's great. Exactly. So go see it. Uh, I, I've seen it. Lord knows. Oh, oh, probably like two dozen times at this point. Uh, it's one of my favorite films. Um, it has a little bit of a problem with the manic pixie dream girl, but I tried to just overlook that because the rest of it uh, is so lovely. So it's a, it's a fun thing for those of you who, who need something uh, to watch um, who don't want to like break the strike by <laughs> watching like the reality, the unscripted TV that the studios are going to be putting out. Oh. I know. So yeah, we are, there are going to be some dark times going on, but, um, so for those of you who haven't, uh, who haven't been paying attention, um, the writer's guild went on strike and then, uh, though I want to note that they're over actually kind of similar reasons. So these things are connected. And then SAG-AFTRA, the, um, uh, the actor's guild then also, uh, went on strike, but Sarah, why are they striking? What do they want? To be honest with you, I know less about the writer strike, um, mm. which makes me feel like a real clown. Um, but essentially, as capitalism forces all capitalists to do, uh, the movie industry is truly full of the most ghoulish ghouls that have ever ghouled around town. Mm-hmm. Um, Los Angeles is a bleak fucking place, my guy. Like, it is rough. Um, emotionally, it's one of the most like beautiful places that as soon as you get off the plane, you get this like bad feeling, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Oh, people's whole dreams died here. Like went down <laughs> in a fucking pillar of fire. Yeah. Um, the loneliest city in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, the executives would like to pay as little as possible to produce movies that they will then blow up into mega, mega, mega hits. And, uh, I just want to say, I someone pointed this out to me, and it was like, you know how in the last few years there's been an explosion of these all CGI movies, like everything, like yeah. backdrop CGI, everything. Do you know why that is? Why is that? Because they can hire CGI artists from India <laughs> who are obviously not unionized and work for much less money. So mm-hmm. if you're wondering why... There has been this sort of default to this unbelievable lazy practice, which puts let's 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 name all the people that this puts out of work. Right. Like set designers, especially like set builders, a lot of the costumers like, you know, if all you have to do is put somebody in a green mocap suit and every like, you know, put a little powder on their face, like. Think about how many jobs that removes. But anyway, uh, will you explain the writer strike? Because like, I know more about the SAG strike. The writer's strike uh, is what you would imagine, that the writers are striking for a living wage, essentially. That one of the big ways that writers got paid in the past um, was from what were called residuals, which are basically small royalty payments from the long lifespan of shows. So for those of you who like love rewatching Friends or Seinfeld, right? Every time you watch it, um, you know, e- either from the advertising revenue, if you're watching it on syndication, or from the subscription revenue, if you're theoretically the subscription revenue, if you're watching it in a streaming platform, um, in principle, the writer should be receiving a small amount of the dollars generated by that as residuals. Two things have combined to make writing uh, less lucrative of late. The first is, is that, and this is similar for, for actors. And I want to note here that we're talking about most writers 
and actors who are not your Tom Cruises of the world, who are not, you know, um, the, uh, 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 the people writing these big budget movies or acting in them. These are the people who might be extras, who might have one line in a TV show, that sort of thing. That the seasons used to be about 26 episodes, up to 26 episodes in a season. And you get paid not only the upfront, not only upfront, but also the residuals from that. Now, streaming seasons tend to be eight or 10 episodes. So if you land a gig, and Lord, it's hard to land a gig. If you land a gig, you make a fraction, less than half of what you made before up front. Plus, in a lot of these areas with streaming, you don't get any residuals at all. So you can imagine having your income essentially being more than halved (laughs) um, for each gig that you land has put the writers and many actors in a tough spot. So they actually share a lot of the same concerns um, over that that structure. Um, So that's why... Basically, the writers were striking. They're saying, we need to be able to make a living wage. We're not asking for major amounts of money. We just need enough to have a decent life. There's also, so uh, my friend John Wynn, what's up, John Wynn? Um, I was actually asking him, he might he might want to do a little question and answer because he is both uh, an actor, a writer, and a director. He's kind of a, <clears throat> he's been in, in old Hollywood for over 20 years, um, and he's kind of made it to the point of... Um, of stable income, right. Which Mm -hmm. is like always the goal. Right. So, um, there is, I, I knew a couple people who used to be writers at like a dinner theater in like Mm. Malibu and the real actors would pull up in their 10 year old used broke dick car. And the commercial actors would pull up in their Mercedes Benz, brand new Benz. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. because of this exact structure that we're talking about, and this is from the golden age of TV, So obviously with TV, you have a limited number of channels. You have 24 hours in a day. That's the only amount of time. So um, just a really quick side note, because I think this process is really interesting. The way that Nielsen ratings work um, is you sign up to be a Nielsen family and you have a little receiver that you wear on your belt um, or uh, and then you have like a little like receiver in the house. Right. So Mm -hmm. the little receiver picks up. It listens. It's actually listening. So it listens to. The TV that you're listening to, if you have the radio on in the backdrop, in the background, it it calculates all this and it extrapolates it out to the wider audience. And uh, streaming completely disrupted that system. So um, streaming, uh, for example, uh, the uh, K-pop armies, one of the things that they do is they will stream a song and turn it on silent and then just let it go for days, hours, days, forever and achieve billions of streams this way, right? So like, mm-hmm. but that's not a person listening to the song. That's a person hijacking the streaming system, right? Yes. So um, another thing that's that goes away with this, as you were saying, is syndication. And syndication yes. is where so many actors, they, they make a lot of money from two things. One is appearance fees. So you get, every actor has an appearance fee and it's the amount of money required to show up for one day. Right. So this is built on the pilot system and God, Matt, we're fucking old. Do you realize that as we talk about this, (laughs) how fucking old we are? (laughs) It does make me feel ancient. (laughs) So the way that pilots work is a network orders a pilot. So they order one episode of one show and that is where everybody gets paid their appearance fee. So my friend, John, he, um, 
This is after he was named on-air talent for, um, uh, I think it was a DirecTV exclusive channel. Mm -hmm. But so his one-day appearance fee got up to about $25,000, which sounds like a lot, right? But to even get to the set on that day, he had to have an agent. He had to have a manager. He had to have a lawyer, which like Mm -hmm. the lawyer agents are usually often lawyers themselves. Not Uh, always, And then you have... Not always, but yeah. but there's a lot of overlap in yes. that community. Uh, and then you have a separate entertainment lawyer who whose sole job is to look over all your contracts and make sure you're not getting fucked, right? Yep. And all those people get paid out from your single day appearance fee. So you might only be left with six, eight, ten thousand dollars off of that. Um, and then, okay, so let's say you book the pilot, you get on the show. The show orders we call uh, a front. I think it's because it's and then the, there's a back nine. So it, it's a 22 episode or I'm sorry, 26 episodes. They order the front 13, the back nine. That's what it is. So it's 23 up to 26 episodes. Mm-hmm. And all of those are markers along the way of your sort of um, career stability for the next like six to 12 months. You know what I mean? So yep. They might, they might order the pilot and not the show, not even the front 13. Uh, they might order the front 13 and then cancel the show. They might you know, order a whole season, then cancel the show. Or, you know, as we've seen with Netflix, I may they all burn in fucking hell that they have a 10, you know, 10 or 20 episodes, two 10 episode seasons. And then they just look at the hard numbers and it's not making the money and they, and they, Pull the plug on it, right? And on a note here that you get this after you've done auditions and basically hustled, hustled, hustled and got nothing, 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 nothing for a long time. So it might seem like a lot of money up front, but you have to factor in all of the unpaid labor um, that the actors are doing and and the writers and every other creative uh, involved in it to actually land that paycheck. And I'll, I'll give one example. I had a, a guy that I was, when I was in my early twenties, uh, I was working a temp job and uh, the guy I was working with was an actor um, and he was in between roles. Um, and he said, you know, he had just started temping again because he had spent the last nine months auditioning for things. And the reason he could spend the last nine months full-time auditioning is that he had gotten one commercial the year previously for like, he was, uh, I don't know if any of you remember this. It was a guy who's like in an operating table and all of the machines and everything start, uh, doing the, the, uh, the, the, uh, first notes of tainted love. <laughs> so then right during the operation, it's ridiculous. It's silly. It's funny. He's just the dude on the operating table. And so he made $25,000 over the course because yeah. it went on uh, being a, a global marketing campaign. So he yeah. got paid 500 bucks up front. Uh, and then he made an additional $25,000 over the year. But that was the only gig he got that year. Yeah. And he spent that $25 essentially on rent and food while he hustled for his next thing. And he was running out of money. So he needed to take this... Um, take this uh, uh, temp job to try to make ends meet until he landed his next gig. Super, super talented guy. Uh, really, really good actor. I saw him in a uh, small play. He invited me. I saw him in a small show way, way, way off Broadway because they're all still acting. 
uh, while they're doing this. He was not paid for his work, right? It was like uh, 35 people in the audience. He was fantastic. And you compare that to, uh, he had uh, been classmates. Um, I can't remember her name. Uh, I think it's one of, I think it's Zoe Deschanel's sister, the one who's in Bones. Oh, Emily. Yeah, Emily Deschanel. And uh, he was in the same class as her, and she auditioned once and got the the, the job on Bones. Yeah. And but... so he was just like, she's she's lovely, she's super nice, but he's like, man, I wish I wish that would happen to, <laughs> to me. So I just want to note here, the dollar figures we're talking about come after strings of heartache and failure. And I, this is why I want to have John on the show, because he's going to tell his own story, obviously, way better than I could, but... So John, John has a very, very typical Hollywood success story. And I'm using air quotes because like he is not famous, right? He has not directed a major motion picture, um, but he has enough money to have a wife and a kid in the house. Right. So like, yeah. he's doing great. Yep. Um, but the way he got to Los Angeles is again, really typical of the sort of vampire uh, system, whereas he was signed. So he's also a musician. And he made this like Ryan Cabrera, like deeply emo um, acoustic album, like in the early 2000s. And so he got signed to, I don't remember, Sony or Interscope, but the music industry does a process called shelving where they will sign. So at the time, Ryan Cabrera was really famous, right? So they, what they, what all these record companies do is they want to sign 10 artists who are just like Ryan Cabrera in various flavors. John was Asian Ryan Cabrera. His family is Vietnamese. Um, and then they sign, they own the rights to all the music that you record as a signed artist to them. And then they put it on the shelf. And the point is yep. that you can't make a record for somebody else that might outsell Ryan Cabrera. So mm -hmm. first things first, he just gets kicked in the dick by the entertainment industry. Right. And then over the years sort of fashioned this career out of, like I said, he is a very, very handsome Vietnamese person of Vietnamese descent. So yeah. he booked a lot of really humiliating, undignified roles where he had to act. And this is a Hollywood term. Fresh off the boat is the, is yep. like the, what they still say, which means you, you have to pretend to have a thick Asian accent. Yeah. And I want and, to know, that's one of the reasons why I struggled ever to book gigs is that I can't do a fake Asian accent. Uh, <laughs> accent work is not one of my strengths. And yet the roles that I would often be, they'd want to cast me for required me to put on a fake accent. And, yep. be, and even as humiliating as that would have been, I would have taken them if I could have done it, but I yep. can't. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, uh, so John is in this hilarious movie uh, with Ryan Starr, the girl that was on um, American Idol, but he mm. played um, a, a, zomb a cannibal zombie boy band member at the time. Nice. Um, the other thing that is worth mentioning about these pay rates is you're an actor, right? So your body matters. Like you're, you know, mm -hmm. this is, John has one of those jackrabbit uh, metabolisms and go he can go fuck himself for that. But like, you know, <laughs> If your whole thing is like, like before Will Ferrell was Will Ferrell that we know, he was in Herculean shape. Lorne Michaels says yeah. he comes in, he is muscled up. He has big shoulders. He's cut up. Lorne Michaels wants to cast him, but he says, this guy's not funny. 
This this muscled, handsome man is not funny. Farrell stops working out, just quits, starts drinking yeah. beer. Like he is trying to get dad bod. He has he has been working to have this Herculean figure. And the thing between him and success is he's too fit. Yeah. Right? And this is the like, so when we're talking about pay, people are doing the whole like, oh, well, I'm so sorry. It's hard being, first of all, only. I think it's something like 90 something percent of SAG actors are people making enough money to live off of just acting. Like you, you get your SAG card when you're an extra, you know? Yeah. So SAG has 160,000 members. The WGA has 20,000 members. So I want you to think how, like, I think most people can name a handful less than a hundred actors and actresses off the top of their head. (laughs) Right. So, like, there are another 159,900 members of SAG um, who you don't know who are all uh, working to, to make it happen. And they are, I mean, I've had the, the, the great joy of being able to be friends with and work with some amazing actors and actresses. And uh, they are generally all immensely talented. Just unbelievable. That's one of the reasons why I didn't pursue it is because... I knew how much better they are than I could ever dream uh, of being. Uh, also, I have a face for radio, uh, as they say. <laughs> no, you don't. But, um, but it is, It is. everyone says, everyone who moves to Los Angeles for a non-acting job says, like, mm-hmm. you get off the plane and it's 100,000 of the most beautiful people you've ever seen. And everywhere you go, it's the most beautiful people you've ever seen. Yeah. Like I was uh, joking with one of my dates that like we are like New York fives and like <laughs> like Indiana nines and L.A. negative threes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, for real. Like as I am right now, I am also in the L.A. negatives. Like I yeah. can put on makeup and an outfit to get to one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I can work all day to get to one on the L.A. scale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and like and and this is not taking away cuz like you, it is work. To have yeah. one of those bodies, it is hard. It requires a huge amount of dedication. There was one funny thing um with uh uh Chris um the one who was on Parks and Rec. Um Oh. Yeah. Chris Pratt. That one. Chris Pratt. Yeah. Right? They you know, he got super shredded for when he joined the MCU when he became Star-Lord to the point when he was on Parks and Rec they had to like note, they had to like write in how yeah. how why he was getting so fit and he just said, "Oh, I stopped drinking beer." And Rob Lowe said, "How much beer were you drinking?" Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but he was asked like what the hardest thing was. He's like he had to give up all carbohydrates. Yep. entirely like yep. he hasn't had a carbohydrate in years and he's like and this is a guy who loved eating beignets and drinking yep. beer like he has none of it it's like um it's intense or if any of you ever want to google what the uh the rock eats it i was is... just gonna say yeah so much steamed cod think about yeah. the worst fish you've ever the most flavorless fish of all the fish in the sea and know that the rock eats pounds and pounds and pounds of it steamed which like he's just applying it's just hot steam that's all he's cooking it with yeah Yeah. and it's like it's it's to the point of absurdity where every time like a cod sees his shadow it like has like (laughs) ancestral memory it's like it is cod slayer (laughs) (laughs) 
Like, like but, it is But to insane. your point, The Rock, for example, just a great example of, and, and this should be, this is, people tell these stories as like an anecdote of celebrity vanity and not, and they don't read it as like, my God, the stakes, the investment is so high. So The Rock, anytime he travels, he has a whole gym that fits into an 18 wheeler. We're talking like a full box and the 18 wheeler, whenever he's on set is somewhere nearby and they set him up with a full gym. Also think about like, the rock would be what is, is maxing out every single machine at the planet fitness. He can't just be yeah. having like your standard range of weight. You know what I mean? Yes. So, and I think people read that as just like, God, what a diva. And it's like, he's not paying for that. Like his studio is paying for that. And they're yeah. saying, you better get your fucking ass in there and show up on every scene as shredded as humanly possible. Enjoy your cod. Exactly. And like, this is what they go through. This is what you go because your body is your instrument, which is uh, something a lot of people, uh, you know, that, you know, people talk vocalists say their voice is their instrument, actors, their body is their instrument. It is very, very true. Um, And it sounds it sounds sort of pretentious, I think, to people who aren't involved in it. But like I see uh, I've seen how much they go in. And like I just want to note here, this is not what the studio executives are doing. They are not subsisting on steam, Todd. <laughs> they are not working out uh, on specialty equipment uh, yeah. for hours and hours each day, sacrificing everything. To They're make, not Beyonce to... drinking her master cleanse cayenne fucking pepper water so she can fit into her dream girl's dress, you know? Like, I never knew that this was a thing, but apparently something uh, actors used to do back in the day to get drunk without getting calories was what was called butt chugging. Yeah. Which, yeah, which it involved putting alcohol literally in your butt to be absolved through the perineum. Um, So you would get alcohol in your bloodstream, but because it was already past your gastrointestinal system, you did not take in the calories. Um, And this might be, and this is not meant to be defamation. This is something I heard. I heard, I do not know that this is a fact that this, that uh, Demi Moore was known for doing this a substantial amount back in the day, um, which has changed my mental image of her, especially in Labyrinth. Um, substantially, <laughs> but like, this is the amount that, and these, and I want to note that this isn't something that just, you know, the rock does that every aspiring actor is yeah. absolutely having to go through huge amounts of self-discipline and work to get their bodies to be, uh, whatever the studio, uh, wanted to be, whatever the audition is asking for. Um, and this I was is say, immensely difficult work. I was going to say, meanwhile, the writers are absorbing all of those calories mm-hmm. uh, because on the flip <laughs> side, writers have, uh, if you're a 30 Rock fan, that's a pretty, that's a pretty um, spot on uh, description of what life is like as a cast member and writer, especially if you do both. Um, and if you follow any of the sort of minor cast members who are also right on the show, like they are posting, um, uh, there's my one of my favorite videos is still um god i can't think of the other dorky brown-haired guy but um 
it was like four in the morning and they were doing rewrites and they just decided to do a, a flashlight remake of the um, uh, Call Your Girlfriend video. And they had mm-hmm. Taryn. Taryn puts on a fluffy jacket and they do the whole thing like shot for shot. And they're like, anyway, back to work. But I mean, like their hours, meanwhile, are completely psychotic. You're expected to, um, on a lot of writing crews, you're expected to stay on set. Um, mm-hmm. Like you might do on the spot rewrites. They might start shooting a scene and say like, this doesn't really work. Like we need, you know, we need to make this happen and we need it to work in the script or whatever. Um, and then sometimes you have actors who don't know what they're talking about and they want to rewrite the script and you just end up doing a lot of ego coddling and you're dealing with a director, you're dealing with the actual stars themselves. Um, and it's not that it isn't fun. It's just that the pay is fucking trash. The hours are insane. Um, and then, and then we're, we've managed to do all this without actually getting into the substance of what they are upset about, which is essentially the takeover of AI to cut down as much human expenses that the studios possibly can and make all these CGI AI generated scripts, everything, everything, everything so that they can pay as few people as humanly possible. But do the, uh, the SAG one is interesting because it's uh, you're essentially um, the studio wanted to be able to buy people's map them like mocap them and then essentially buy the rights to their CGI fucking likeness. What mm-hmm. the fuck? So in exchange for one day's pay. Yes, in exchange for your appearance fee. So that $25,000 that gets whittled down to eight, that's all you would get for them to use your face forever. And your voice. (laughs) And your voice. And And so a lot of actors, so I want to just, the reason I mentioned voice is that there are a substantial number of actors who are voice actors. This is what they do primarily. You, uh, many, I mean, you've been listening to them all your life, whether or not you've known it, you, you probably... Uh, listen to commercials all the time. You're like, that's a familiar voice. It's like, yeah, yeah this person has been voice acting commercials, you know, yeah. for Applebee's or, you know. Uh, saying, my uh, first thought was like, like the Will Arnett Applebee's commercial. You're like, why are you trying to get me to buy cheesy breadsticks, Will Arnett? Yeah, but you know what? He has a great voice. He does a great job. Yes. And <laughs> if it weren't Applebee's, I might be persuaded, but alas, it is still <laughs> Applebee's. Um, and, and so it is trivially simple to train an AI on someone's voice print. And for a lot of these actors, especially those who've been working for a long time, there is a ton of tape out there already. There are volumes and volumes uh, of their voice. So if you, for example, there was a mini boom during the, uh, uh, during the pandemic of A-list Hollywood actors doing audiobooks. Yeah. So you had people like Anne Hathaway narrating, I think it was like Pride and Prejudice or something like that. Because like she's sitting around, she doesn't have anything to do. She's like, I like this book. Why not? And Amazon's <laughs> like, here's a boatload of money. And, and she went ahead and did it. <laughs> but it's trivially simple to take that amount of text and train it to sound like Anne Hathaway. And so yeah. there was a, I sent to one of my friends who who had worked in music videos and stuff like that before there was there is this trend now of in k-pop of doing ai covers of one group covering another group's song oh i don't like that at all so it was in this case uh an ai cover of one girl group itzy covering uh new jeans's new song super shy 
Obviously, this has not happened. They work uh, there on different labels, JYP versus Adore, which is part of Hybee. Um, they have do different genres. But for anyone who's like, I wonder what it would have sounded like. The AI isn't great yet. Right. But it literally has just been a few months since it's come out. You give it two or three years and it's going <laughs> to sound amazing. Well, and so I was, yeah. there's one caveat to that. So AI... Later generations are going to learn from earlier generations, so they're going to learn from themselves. So the improvements will come off of a not great model. So if if they find a way to intervene to improve it, yes, it will be crazy. Like yeah, they will. The I have, are already. Mm. I have amazing faith uh, that our computer scientists will ruin this. So <laughs> <laughs> so. Imagine this, you're a struggling actor, right? And this has already been a stated goal of the studios. The studios have said, they've since denied it, but it sounds like something they're doing. That basically they're just trying to wait out the actors and the writers. They're like, well, rent is due, mortgages are still due, and we'll just wait them out, basically. So you can imagine you're a struggling actor and someone dangles 25 grand. It'll be eight or 10 by the time you get it in front of you in exchange for your likeness or your voice or both. You have rent due. You have bills. Maybe you have student loans. You have food. (laughs) You think, what the hell? I'm not getting jobs anyway. Right? You're like, this is is a good amount of money. So you take it. Well, guess what? Now you're going to be casting things for the rest of your existence and never get paid another dime. Like... This is this is the thought I can't get out of my head in the system, Matt. And tell me if you think this is reasonable. But <clears throat> like you said, you're young, you're unknown, you really need that twenty five grand. You know, your maybe your plan is to be one of these people that comes just to see what's possible in Hollywood. You're not really in, you know, intent on being famous. Yada yada yada. Yeah. So you figure you're going to go home after three years anyway. So what is you know how much content could they really make off of you? Then you go home. You go back to your fucking family's boat dock business in Maine and <clears throat> two huge shows blow up and your friends start texting you and saying like, oh my God, I saw you in this huge major television thing. How yep. fucking pissed would you, would you be if, you know, you ended up being a per- perennial perpetual extra in every single Black Mirror series that comes out, right? Like, yep. Then as you get older, like, or, or flip side, this is the other thing that I can't stop thinking about. You're a little baby actor and you do make it, you make it huge. You're huge. But now MGM owns the rights to your face and AI likeness and voice. Now they're going to make some weird ass Polar Express bullshit with just your AI generated face. Cause, because in this, what would stop them in that situation? Right? Nothing. 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 Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So it is it is possible under this provision that somebody, you know, let's say Margot Robbie, God bless her, the the my queen of the Barbie uh, mm-hmm. phenomenon, you know, way back in the day, signs this clause and then gets booked for more and more real life gigs. And then she's a superstar. And this other studio has her fucking face and voice on file. What yeah. would have stopped them from making... Barbie with Margot Robbie without Margot Robbie. Yeah. 
I think the my biggest worry there is that it gives very little incentive for studios to actually invest in actors. Yeah. That it is that already a massive portion of what gets spent is on PR and marketing. That is often 50 or 60% of the budget essentially of the overall yep. expenditure. Often you'll see a movie cost 100 million dollars to make, right? Often that's just the money that they outlaid to make the actual piece of media. Then there's an additional 60 or $70 million that has to go in all the PR and marketing in addition. So like, for example, that's why people are saying, you know, the new Indiana Jones movie um, could end up costing over $550 million when all is said and done. So the studio needs to make a lot, a lot of money over time um, to, to recoup that. This is one of the reasons why you tend to see the same actors over and over again. It's because it's easier to try to monetize an existing asset than a new one. I was going to say, we should also say that studios are themselves a lot of times responsible for the death spiral of these movies for exactly the reason that you point out. Like, Mm -hmm. if they get bad early screenings on, like bad, you know, this is all the single most profit-driven artistic you know, thing that exists, I would say way more even than the music industry, Um, you know, then they're going to take away $20 million of its advertising budget, right? It's kind of like every studio's dream movie is my big fat Greek wedding, like, and, uh, and, and maybe Blair Witch Project also, right? Like, yes, cost 20 fucking dollars to make no stars, one star, whatever, one major star phenomenon at the box office, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, it's also why, yeah, like you said, over the next few months, we're going to see an absolute onslaught of some of the worst, most disgusting reality television that will ever, ever, ever exist. Yeah. And like here, I have to say that it's clear to me that this is very much in, this is not just about money. This is about whether or not human beings are going to remain at the center of the media we consume because you know love it love them or 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 hate them like we have seen how the creative visions of very specific people have make wonderful things and terrible things often it's the same person like m night Shyamalan managed to make (laughs) both the sixth sense and and the avatar the last airbender debacle (laughs) but like that's what makes art interesting right is that it is messy and risky and human and like like you have things like ryan gosling and um fuck what's her name on the on the set of the notebook um oh rachel mcadams and rachel mcadams having amazing on-screen chemistry but then off-screen hating each other's guts and never speaking (laughs) they have since become friends but i think that's like a fun thing because these are intensely human endeavors and i'm worried that like from the writer's point of view the writers i think are terrified of just having no jobs ever again ever because they hollywood already owns all like this entire massive library of scripts what hollywood really wants to do is basically do the ai version of monkeys on a key on typewriters making shakespeare they literally just want to throw ai at the problem so they never have to deal with writers ever again. And I don't know about you, uh, Sarah, but the idea of 
being able to be like, I want a movie that's an hour and a half long starring these people that uh, that is a romantic comedy set in England. I hit a button and then a movie pops up. That sounds like hell. It sounds like hell. And the worst part is, I think that it's what what is going to actually come out of this because like the AI generated scripts are fucking wonky as fuck. But they might hire one writer instead of a team of 10, right? Like Mm -hmm. they might hire one writer to go over and just fix the fucking computer weirdness, right? Like, and they might say to him, I am not concerned about you injecting quality here. Like we need you to correct the computer weirdness and get it back to us as fast as possible. So now not only are you stuck with kind of this one person and their worldview and their biases as it relates to the script, but like, they're going to want to make it as cheaply as possible. So you won't even be able to have that much artistic, like, so being the head writer of an AI generated script will be essentially meaningless. That, that used to be a big deal. Like yeah. even if your pilot failed or, you know, like there's so many um, uh, like comedian led TV shows that, that America hated, but comics love them. Like comics love that, you know, I forget like Dana Carvey show was really weird and like, it just didn't take off and it got canceled, but comics fucking love it. Right. Cause it's yeah. just weird. And it was like, I can't believe they let them do that on TV. But like, that was kind of a glorious moment for a comic, but now you're going to end up with all these, just like nothing. Watch the computer. You know, it's like data yeah. entry jobs. And I, yeah, exactly. And there are already like advertisements in other fields for what are called prompt engineers, basically people who are really good at like massaging um, <sighs> the AI to spit out the output um, that you want it to, which to me sounds <sighs> again like a version of hell because you because you don't actually know how to do the thing. The only thing you're good at is babysit the machine who actually does the job. Um, and I want to note here, then also you, those are two very different skills, being able to write a script and being able to fix computer weirdness in a script are two entirely different things. Yeah. Right. So like, I wanted, the reason I brought up Scott Pilgrim before wasn't just, you know, uh, just on a whim, but Scott Pilgrim is a deeply weird piece of media right? Yep. It's about a guy who wants to date a girl. She can travel through dimensions making deliveries <laughs> for like a Canada's, Canada's version of Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and But she has seven evil exes. And mm-hmm. to date her, he has to fight and defeat all of her seven evil exes. Um, and in yeah, very specifically... Has, in a world that has magical realism. Like, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, in a world that often defies normal physics and offers you no explanation for it other than just like go on this fucking ride with us. Yeah, exactly. And like a battle of the bands is literally a battle that the music (laughs) produces like combat, like the bass battle, (laughs) the bass battle between Scott Pilgrim and Brandon Um, Routh and and the vegan is, is fucking epic. But like, (laughs) Also, a funny thing for that is that, like, the actors learn to play their instruments for the movie. Oh, yeah! So they are playing their instruments. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's 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 pretty great. The soundtrack is amazing. Um, Beck, a a bunch of uh, musicians worked on it, but like Beck worked on it. One of the producers for Oasis worked on it. I still think "Garbage Truck" is the greatest love song ever written. Um, 
and like also Crash and the Boys So Sad, which is literally just so sad. That's the whole thing. <laughs> I'm so sad. I mean, I'm so very, very sad. Don't you think it's, it's that this weird also... and an AI will not yeah. make an AI will not make that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're gonna miss out on all those like the whole the the reason that we call movie magic, right? Is like it is, we can see all the behind the scenes thing and we can see like, I love watching like the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes and you can see them do the, um, do the manipulated perspective with like a normal sized person standing really close to the camera. You know what I mean? Like how they achieve all that stuff. And we can know that. And still, as soon as the movie starts, we are transported, right? Like that, that disbelief, that awareness of how this was made just disappears. Uh, and it doesn't uh, cheapen or negate that experience of the movie. And like, I'm really worried. I'm really worried that, that a lot of this will disappear. Like um, I follow this, he has recently passed, but I'm trying to think of his name, but he's a uh, old wig maker from back in the day. And goes through all of these iconic wigs that this man built for these iconic roles that we all think of. And you think back to the movie, you're like, holy shit, that was a wig? Like, mm -hmm. I fully thought that that was red ass hair growing out of that actress's head in a perfect little wave. And you bitches are coming at me telling me this is a wig. And, you know, <clears throat> missing all that stuff, right? Like missing uh, the fact that the... Um, uh, costume designer that one costume designer came to the oscars in a dress made of uh, uh, uh um american express gold cards right like <laughs> you, you you there's so much drama that happens just because of the artistic and creative talent of the industry and when you're just like no thank you i'd just like to suck the soul out of that and put it in my magical seashell because i am ursula um yeah. that'll be fine it's also we've already seen the way that um algorithmic taste making in the fashion industry has sort of ruined fashion yeah. um right that fashion tends to look if you ever wonder why like suddenly you know uh one star where like you know a designer makes a particular type of of like summary uh like um dress and then suddenly everyone has a million different knockoff versions all of which are nowhere near as interesting or as good as the original the reason is literally that the algorithms pick up on, oh, people are looking at Instagram pictures of this thing, and then they just churn out knockoffs of it with very little human input, and it gets yeah. manufactured and bought. And so you get this just tidal wave of shit, none of which yeah. is actually worth making or wearing, um, but it can be done extremely cheaply. But you know, at least in Hollywood, you wouldn't actually have like physical waste the way that you do with the fashion industry but like for me this is about like it's already a little overwhelming to go to a place like netflix and try to find what's actually worth watching and what isn't there's just too much media yeah the idea that i will then have to wade through like literally unlimited piles of garbage um <laughs> Right, it can continue to produce infinite quantities of garbage to throw at me, right? And it, it's just it's just awful to think about. And then thinking like, and plus, there's like no one to interview afterward. There's no one to talk to. Like, I can't. You can't go into their thought process or what it meant to them or what they brought to the role. And so much 
of at least for me, I don't I mean, tell me if, if, if I'm off base here, but so much of loving movies, loving TV for me is like those deeply human elements and the stories of like the serendipity uh, between the creatives who are working on it and them discovering something during the process. And like, that's the thing, right? Yeah. It's, and uh, all it's, of that will be gone. It's it's a uh, Nick Offerman inhabiting Ron Swanson, right? And then giving a voice to this kind of revolutionary concept of masculinity, right? Like <clears throat> people love to interview him and be like, "How do I learn to be tougher?" Like Ron Swanson, and he's like, "You need to stop worrying about being tough as it relates to masculinity." I can just hear it in his voice. Uh, a real man is somebody who is comfortable with his feelings and has passion in his heart for things that he cares about and loves. And you're like, Oh my God, like, yeah. tell me everything, Nick Offerman. Uh, but you know, we wouldn't and I want have to know his moment. character, his character, like the ending for his character is so perfect, right? He becomes yeah. a park ranger. Yeah. Like, like he, he, instead of being an obstructionist in government, he goes and finds the part of government that he can actually believe in. And that would be something that at the beginning of the show, they never would have thought of. Yep. Right. It only emerged through the collaboration between the directors and the producers, the actors and the writers over years got to this and, like moment of bliss. And the audience talking about the show in a lot yeah. of forums and stuff like yeah. <clears throat> to me. So Parks and Rec to me is like one of the best examples of all of the characters evolving, like every single one. No one stays flat during the whole like you can tell that they're kind of painting like uh, um, Aziz Ansari's character, Tom, Donna, as like people who are kind of meant to be a little bit more flat, a little bit more like just silly. And yeah. even they, like Jerry gets gets a hilarious backstory that like, well, yeah, you can make fun of me all you want. I go home to Christy fucking Brinkley. Like, are you shitting me? You know what I mean? The depictions of masculinity uh, <laughs> on that show are perfect because like Jerry yeah. deserves everything he gets. Like it is yeah. magnificent. <laughs> uh, and, and that, you know, you, the, the way every character evolves is they have to shed some toxic trait of theirs, right? They have mm -hmm. to shed something that's not serving them, the universal experience, yada, yada. Uh, but I just don't think that happens with an AI generated script, right? Like you cannot, a, a robot can never inject um, compelling humanity into anything. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing because there literally is no human. Right? <laughs> yeah. th th that's the biggest problem. Like, there literally isn't a human involved in it. And, like, it, the way that the AIs work now is they basically are big averagers. They are predictive what word comes is is likely to come after the next. But the whole goal of great art is that you can't predict what comes after the next, and yet it is still perfect. The, the thing that literally makes the art great is the fact that you could not predict it, that it has not, <laughs> that by averaging everything that came before it together, you would never come out with this answer. Um, <laughs> I, I was at a, an exhibition recently uh, at the Katona Museum of Art, which is one of the most spectacular, like small local art museums you will ever see. And there was a, a the first museum, a solo museum uh, exhibition by a Taiwanese artist. And he uh, did these um, cyanotypes. Um, mm. So do you know what a cyanotype is? 
It's a, it's an early form of photograph. Is that correct? Exactly. And cyan. Yeah. You know, that color that's in all the printers, right? (laughs) So everything comes out kind of blue, but it's very photoreactive. It makes this really intense blue color. And it's super easy to do that. You just like put the cyan, uh, you, you put the, uh, medium on a piece of, uh, of paper. In this case, he used Schwann paper or rice paper and he crinkled it up and then he put it out in the, put it out in the sun where the wind then took it and shook it around and the, and the, and the, the sun might be brighter one day or another day or be at a different angle from the type of day. And that's how it got its exposure. He didn't control any of it. And the reason he chose a cyanotype is you can just put out hundreds of them, right? And they'll just sort of develop themselves. You don't need to go into a dark room. You literally just put them out in, in sunlight. And then he would go through them and then select the ones that he thought had an interesting piece here or there. And then he'd collage them together to make these beautiful abstract landscapes. Yeah. And this is not something you can generate, right, through an AI process. This is, it's, it's a procedural art, but it is also curated by his taste. He sees this and sees it going together with this thing, and neither of them existed together in space until he put them there. Artist like, intent, right? Exactly. And he says he never knows. He's like, most of them are shit. <laughs> He's like, most of them, there's nothing interesting. <laughs> but then he'll see a piece here or a piece there, you know, and then or it what or he'll see something that reminds him of, of a piece of paper he saw two weeks ago. So then he has to yeah. ruffle through and find it's like, oh, these were meant to go together. Yeah. Right. And it's that sort of alchemy, which is the combination of his both uh, his training in both traditional Chinese art and also Western classical art techniques um, that make this very particular and peculiar um, uh, a vision for what his art should be. And it, he's done it for years. Like he's been experimenting yeah. with this for uh, perfecting his craft for the last 10 years. And so if you put the same work, let's say it's literally exactly the same, and there's only so much I can glean from looking at it, right? But when I'm there with him and I see like that he's tanned, right? Yeah. He's clearly been out in the sun a lot. He's this very thin um he looks very severe at first, but he turns out to be kind of a little bit goofy man. And he tells me about his training and why he chose to do this. And like sort of the, how he finds the process silly, but meditative, like suddenly the art actually takes on extra dimension and meaning. Um, It is not just the landscape. It's not just as woman said, Oh, I see birds on it. And I'm like, it's not just that landscape right it's also like a map of his life and again i don't want more art that has no soul i would rather have (laughs) less art that actually is grounded in like this agony of human existence i was gonna say isn't that how i mean it is like the way we mark the point at which humans went from Neanderthal to, you know, uh, oh Jesus, I can't think. Um, uh, not Homo erectus, 
uh, Homo sapien sapien, right, is that we started making art, like, because art serves absolutely no survival purpose. Like, there, there is no point of it except for enjoyment. You're supposed to look at it and go, that's nice. The moment that we started doing that is when we became the brains that we have today. So the, the yeah. I like, I love this. And this is one of those things that gives me that like sick thinking about the vastness of space feeling, but like the first person who, who carved and polished a stone for the purpose of hanging around their neck has exactly more or less the same brain that you and I do sitting here in front of our laptops. And Oh, I just got that another wave of sick feeling. I'm just like, God, we're all connected. Fuck, 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 fuck. We're yeah. a blade of grass on the, on the field of time. Um, but it feels like handing this over to a machine is truly like handing over our humanity. And, and I, what, again, I got a Pollyanna it up over here, but like mm -hmm. what I hope for is that it'll be like eating sugar-free desserts when you're just like, this is weird. Like, I understand mm. that this is trying to be a brownie. I get it. But like, it's not a brownie. And we both know that. Like, I hope that we are, we, I think you're right. We're going to have a period where the market is glutted with AI generated content. Uh, and just won't, it'll all be like Emily in Paris. It'll be like, eh, who cares? Like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> and I also want to say like my, my best moments as a human being, truly as a human being is when I was a writer on a staff and we would have our pitch meeting. And so we would all pitch our content. This is what I want to write about this week. And then everybody would kind of like meal it over in their mouth. Right. And then say like, what if you did this? Like, what if you got it from this angle? Or you would say like, oh, I really want to write about this subject. I'm just not sure what the angle is. Like, I'm not sure what the hook is. And then you are in a room with people who have, you know, 25, 40, 50 years of having read and absorbed other content who are trying to help you make the most compelling piece of art that you possibly can. And truly, those are some of the best memories of my whole life yeah. is collaborating with other humans on a creation, right? And more than anything, I mourn the potential loss here of those communities because like I had a rough ending of my career at that magazine but I would still more than anything love to sit in a room and pitch ideas back and forth with these hoes you know what I mean um, oh yeah and uh yeah I don't know I think that's what I think we're we're dealing with something artificial potentially dangerous but more than anything just something that's going to cheapen and suck all the nutrients, if you will, out of a lot of entertainment content because a huge part of the entertainment industry is just parents plopping their kids down in front of a screen. Mm -hmm. And I do worry that for every Miss Rachel, there will be 90 AI generated cartoons that are just weird bullshit, you know? Yeah. And like, my worry is, is that the market's just going to get saturated to the point where anyone who's investing in actually making things is at a competitive disadvantage over someone who yep. puts their entire budget toward marketing it. Yep. Um, that there's already a problem on YouTube of good creators who make, spend a lot of time uh, writing scripts, recording things, um, being ripped off word for word by people who then just feed the script into an AI speech, like text to speech generator and people can't tell the difference. So yep. it's basically just leeching away and it's parasitic. And the problem is that these parasites do eventually kill the host by leeching away the views. They make it economically unviable 
for uh, for, pe- for smaller creators to make money. And instead, what you end up is with basically corporate shills. You end up with people who are promoting other products or a point of view. They don't have to worry about making a profit um, because they're being bankrolled behind the scenes. Um, and you just wind up essentially with either AI bullshit or mouthpieces. Yep. That's, that's my biggest worry. And like, I think that you and I have worked in creative industries, so we have a different perspective on it. Like we know what it's like to be in those rooms, right. To be in a rehearsal or to be in a recording studio and, um, and like the, the joy the absolute joy and tedium uh, yeah. of being in a recording studio. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of tedium. A lot of it is quite boring. Um, uh, I was just uh, by uh, yesterday. I was talking to um, someone about their kid getting into uh, playing music, and I said, mm-hmm. you know, that they had they had really grown bored with sort of the quote unquote fundamentals process, right? Like running scales and arpeggios and yada yada yada. And I was like, yeah, like you need to get them the better, the better way I think now for the modern music student to your point is that like, you gotta have a moment where you're like, oh shit, we're really doing it. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if you want to make a movie, don't worry so much about film school, go find a shitty camera and make a few shitty movies with your friends. Right. Like if we wanted, I think we can take this back with just, I mean, the Blair Witch Project now is like old hat, but at the time it was so revolutionary. It was, mm-hmm. I was so scared after I saw that movie. Like, like there are just things that we need humans to make. And I say, go out and do them rather than wringing our hands so much about what AI is doing or how to maximize it. Fuck that. Go shoot your weird low budget horror movie and have fun with it. And then there, there, there just will not ever be a substitute for human influence on creation. That's all it is. Yeah. And what I, uh, if you, if you see any director, you look at their early work, it is embarrassingly bad. Um, <laughs> and a lot of early greats are basically just cribbing. They're just copying someone else. But one of the great things from copying, especially when you have no budget, is that you have to be creative and how to get an effect with no budget, no crew. Like, how do I get the like the knife the the knife scene? How do I get the background noise? How do I record uh, the audio without all the wind? Right? How do I do these things? Um, what what changes if I place the camera here versus there? Shoot at this type of day time of day versus another. This camera versus another. This lens. This format. A lot of it you learn by doing it and by imitating and failing at your imitating. Yeah. And and what emerges are very particular and peculiar visions because people's influences are different, right? Yeah. They're coming from different things. They have access to different resources. So what works for one director doesn't work for another one actor. Yeah. The issue I have with AI is that they'll all have access to everything. Yeah. Right? So you don't end up with the weirdness, um, at least not right. a human type of weirdness. Like there was an AI sitcom that trained on Seinfeld <laughs> and it ran 24 seven until it got shut down. But like the problem was, is that it was amusing at first because yeah. it was bizarre. It was. And then it got real fucking weird. Yeah. But it wasn't weird in a human way. Yeah. It was it was weird in a way that was distinctly non-human and just 
became tedious. Uncanny um, Valley. It fell yeah. into the Uncanny Valley. Yeah. And so I, again, like my hope for all these technologies, for all the technologies in the world is that like, this was something, you know, Adam Smith talked about is that like, you know, if we get twice as productive, we can either be all twice as wealthy or all work half as much. Right. But I want to get here to the dollars and cents because the real struggle here is who is going to benefit from technology, the money here. So we're talking a lot of money. So do you know how much the average C- uh, Hollywood executive for a top Hollywood executive makes? I mean, Jesus Christ, if the budgets are $500 million, I would assume in the hundreds of millions minimum, if not billions, $1.6 billion or something. So they actually, just in terms of in compensation, they don't make as much as you'd imagine. Because remember, there are a lot of executives. Okay. So the average top executive makes $28 million as of 2021. Okay. Uh-huh. That's up 53% from 2018. <laughs> right? God damn it. So... The important thing is that not all that money, though, is going to the executive. Some of it's always go- also going to shareholders. And the executives are also shareholders, yet they get paid in options. But Netflix, one of the companies who's quibbling right now, like, for example, the writers are asking for what would amount to an additional $89 million a year yeah. from Netflix. In just one quarter of this year, Netflix did a stock buyback of $400 million. Okay. So we can lay some blame at the, at the feet of the executives, but I just want to note how the corporate management, obviously, that the executives do also play a huge role in this. So instead of spending, spreading that money out right among the, uh, uh, among the people who make the actual stuff, instead they paid the $400 million to investors, some of whom, to shareholders, some of whom are those same people who decided to do the stock buyback. There you go. Right? Yeah. Um, and this is why I think it's important to note that most of the creatives on here are middle-class people yeah. that the average uh, uh, like screenwriter would get like what would amount to like a three to $8,000 per year increase in their income, yeah. which doesn't, which both sounds like a lot and not very much. But you think about right. you think about the functional amount of three to eight thousand to a middle class person, right? Mm-hmm. Like eight thousand is like paying off, God forbid, you know, your whole deductible for a year if you have like a medical emergency or something, you know. And that's exactly it. I think that's important. That also remember this money comes in is lumpy, so getting <laughs> a little bit of extra cushion so you don't have to worry about getting evicted in between, right, is yeah. a really big deal. Um, so like we are talking significant amounts of money, but like, even if everything were agreed to that the, that the, uh, unions are asking for, it would still only be about a little under, it'll be like 480 ish million dollars. Again, Netflix alone did a stock buyback of $400 million in one quarter of this year. Quarter, quarter. In one quarter of this year. So... Uh. The question is, and this is the same thing that often happens uh, in sports, 
people always call, you know, the, the athletes greedy for wanting to bargain harder for more money. I'm like, and in some cases, like in like baseball or whatever, or basketball, football, like, yes, to some degree, sure. it is millionaires versus billionaires. Yeah. But one of the big things I always talk about in sports is minor league players, how it's so important for the minor league, minor league players to have living wages. And that's what we really should be thinking about for the people who are just struggling to make it right. And are really the people who keep the whole thing going. Right. And, and we're not, we're not talking about people who are on unknown shows. You can be a middle-class writer and be on like, you know, we're talking about like not a major network, right? So the WB or comedy central, or, you know, one of these things that's not in your standard, you know, what do they call that? Like you're over the air, you know what I mean? Like it's not CBS, ABC, NBC, right? It's one of these like, Minor programs, for example, they hire writers. Um, anytime you see one of those ESPN specials, that's like four talking heads, and it's Shaq being a goober, and someone has written a script for that. They've had a team of writers to, to do that, and sometimes they hire, for example, comics who have writing experience to come up and what they uh, like bump up a script a little bit, like make it a little bit mm-hmm. funnier. Like uh, so, these writing gigs just exist in this incredibly fluid sort of uh, economic environment, and. And really, we should we should keep underscoring that that in the creative world, everything is so insanely fluid. In that, like, you might get you might book three jobs next week, work like a fucking dog for three months, not get another job for six months, and be sitting around bored. Like, it's just really hard on people, and we all depend on them to make our lives livable and come home and relax from our shitty jobs. And I just hope that we all remember what the actual value of that was like during the pandemic lockdown when we were all watching Tiger King, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Tiger King. Um, and just a little bit of trivia. So this is the first double strike in Hollywood since 1960. Mm-hmm. And um, who led, who was the president of SAG uh, who led them through the, who the, this champion of labor who led uh, the Actors Guild through the strike in 1960? Do you know? Okay, okay. My initial, because uh, Sidney Poitier was a huge labor rights activist, um, that would be my guess, but I don't know. That is an excellent guess. It is not correct. It is the known champion of labor rights, Ronald Reagan. Fuck off. Fuck off. Oh, I should have known. Oh, I should have known. Yeah, Ronald Reagan was brought back in 1959 specifically to deal with the strike. I'm that when so the studios angry right re- now. When the studios refused to budge, Reagan led them on a strike um, <laughs> on, that lasted from January 16th, 1960. Um, sorry, that's when the Writers Guild went on strike. And then March 7th, the screen, uh, SAG joined them. And then April 18th, the strike ended. Uh, so I just want to note that even known foe of unions, Ronald Reagan, uh, <sighs> when it came to his pay and his money, there you go. uh, he struck, um, as well. So I want to be very clear here that we should all be like Ronald Reagan, um, and support <laughs> the unions, uh, against the studios. And, uh, hopefully we will not enter... We will not go without for too long. So all we see are like 35 spinoffs of Kardashians, 
um, <laughs> over the next year or so. I am seriously hoping that to not just for the near term future, but for the long term future of um, the movie and uh, TV industries, we keep people at the heart of it. Yeah, me um, too. Yeah, and not uh, weirdo uh, programmers and business people who have never made a goddamn thing, creative decision in their lives. Yeah, but if you're spe- like me and you're fucking tired of these goddamn Marvel movies, you should be real, real fucking against these AI because Marvel, the Marvel franchise is as close as we can get to a machine generating scripts. <laughs> and I want to note, uh, even I, who was an enthusiastic fan of the uh, original, uh, of the first slate of Marvel stuff, have gotten desperately tired of them. Yeah. Uh, that like, I'm going, uh, making a Barbenheimer uh, double feature on Friday. Um, my friends and I are going to be doing it. Uh, Oppenheimer dinner, then Barbie. Yes. Um, I do want to note that the only way to do it is that they are direct sequels and they exist in the same universe and timeline. So somehow (laughs) the atomic age led from Christopher Nolan's, Oppenheimer to Greta Gerwig's Barbie. I'm going to have to figure out what goes in the middle. Uh, I'll let you know. Do we have bikinis? Listen, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. We don't have bikinis without Bikini Atoll, right? (gasps) Ah, genius. There we go. That's the through line. I love it. Yeah. And uh, I'm also going to be wearing pink. I was told by my friends that if we're going to be doing it, I have to dress appropriately. (laughs) So I will be wearing bright pink, which means I have to run to the store. Speaking of things that are summer appropriate, uh, it's not just hot pink and weird double features of movies. It's also uh, hot honey. So what's going on? Yeah. What's going on with Uh, metal honey this summer? Well, uh, we got a bunch of new and new-ish things online. Uh, I think the most exciting thing personally is um, the... uh, MHF Tastemakers Club, where you get a bunch of like new trial products. I just we're playing around with the hot sauce right now, so I have that out at the farmers market. Um, but yeah, place all your orders at metalhoney.com and use the perpetual the code perp stew. I still don't totally know what you're gonna get. You know what? I'm just gonna check here. Let's let's find out together. See, this is a fun little experiment. Also, now uh you know, before some of you were, were writing it in uh, and you weren't sure what you are going to get, but now we get verification. Okay, here we go. 10% off all products on orders of $25 or more. Incredible. There you go. So get your 10% off. Go to metalhoney.com. Uh, metalhoney.com. Only one person has used the coupon code, so you better get your ass in there. Yeah. Perps do. Uh, and as always, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Perps do. Please send in your questions, suggestions. Um, we're going to be doing an AMA uh, uh, in August for the end of the summer. So send those in. Also, if you have any questions, specific questions about healthcare law and the healthcare system, please send those in. We're going to do a follow up with my friend Jess, where she's going to answer nice. specific questions uh, about the healthcare system. Uh, and please like, subscribe, share, leave a rating and review. It helps us with the algorithm. And that is how we get more people to uh, find the show. But that's going to do it for us this week. This has been The Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And until next time, stay curious.
Bye.